Planet Pod, essential listening for everyone who cares about the planet. Hello and welcome to Planet Pod with me, Amanda Carpenter. As we slowly emerge from what we hope will be the last lockdown, now seems a good time to turn our attention to how we need to think and behave differently towards our natural environment. The COVID cliche is that we all appreciate nature more as our everyday lives were halted in their tracks. It's possibly not so much of a reality as we had hoped. In a recent survey, the charity Hubbub UK found that 43% of people had seen an increase in litter in their local green spaces since COVID, suggesting perhaps that while we all loved having a park to run in or a river to walk beside, we didn't much care what we left on the grass or dropped into the water. Joining me today are two passionate environmentalists who are both on a different but complementary campaign to get us to rethink and rebalance our relationship with the world around us. Truen Restrick is founder and CEO of the charity Hubbub UK, which transforms the way environmental messages are communicated by bringing people and organisations together as a force for good. Hubbub, who are old friends of the podcast, will be known to listeners as the charity that brought you plastic fishing in the Thames and the coffee cup recycling campaign to Starbucks. Truen, welcome to Planet Pod, and thanks so much for joining us. Well, thanks very much for the invitation. It's very, very good to be here. Thank you. My second guest, Dr. Pavel Senkel, has spent two decades in higher education in America before taking up the role as head of Schumacher College and director of learning at the Dartington Trust in Devon. Pavel has always been drawn to colleges and universities whose curriculum fully integrates learning with practice and embodiment, and few places better epitomise that than Dartington. Pavel, welcome and thanks so much for being on Planet Pod. Oh, thank you so much, Amanda. It's a pleasure to be here. And as some listeners may not be familiar with Schumacher and Dartington, and it is an incredibly beautiful and special place. So I wonder, could you tell us a little bit about it and how it works and what makes it so different? Absolutely. Um, and as I speak to you, I'm actually looking out at the formal gardens um, at the centre of Dartington, at the, of the Dartington estate. So it's just a wonderful backdrop for this conversation. Um, so Dartington, as some listeners may know, um, has a long history, you know, coming up on about a century long history, actually, um, in 2025. Um, but founded by Dorothy and Leonard Elmhurst in 1925, really as a center for you know, a, a model of a just and sustainable society. And through experimentation in agriculture, in arts, um, in all kinds of social justice, uh, in making enterprise um, crafts, you know, all of which can, have really continued uh, for the hundred years since, you know, with various types of experiments, we might call them uh, in learning and in arts and you know, most recently, we have sort of transitioned our um, our mission and vision of the whole trust, you know, back to I think its roots of you know, being a center for learning around arts, ecology, and social justice. Um, and you know, throughout that hundred-year history, there's been the the Dartington College of Arts, um, which we are bringing back in the in the guise of the Dartington Arts School, um, which we've started up with new master's programs recently. Uh, Schumacher College, which is celebrating its thirtieth anniversary this year. Um, which has grown tremendously over the past few years from a, you know, two or three master's programs to you know, coming up to 11 or 12 next year. Um, so it's quite clear that you know, what we offer here at Darnington, you know, across both the art school Schumacher and the Darnington Trust in general with short courses and visitor experience is exactly the kind of intersection of you know, ecological thinking, experience, action, uh, and learning that people are looking for. And have you seen that interest and that, I suppose, that focus on that intersection grow uh, as a result of the pandemic? Because as I said, you know, it is that cliche, we've suddenly become much more aware of our environment. But there does seem to be a sense that people have 
tried to rebalance and refocus a little bit. And, and it seems to be, you know, what you're doing there epitomizes that and makes that accessible to people. Absolutely. I mean, what we've seen over the last year, and, and again, it, it's probably impossible to read the tea leaves of higher education or, or learning during a pandemic at all. And, and we're all trying to do that to see you know, where the trends are, what students are interested in. But we've actually, for the last two years, last year and this, seen record applications for our programs. Um, you know, so much so we've had to postpone students' engagement for the following year, which has not historically been the case at a place like Schumacher. Um, but I think people really are looking for that either transformative experience so that they can take whatever they've been doing in their lives, whether it's independent, um, independent work, scholarship, working in enterprise um, at another institution and come here and add that sort of intersection of experience action, you know, at, at, uh, at sort of the, the bringing together of community and ecology. Uh, and most of our programs, I'd say actually all of our programs really hone in on exactly that, the interrelationships of the, the socio-ecological contexts um, and you know, action that people can actually take tangible you know, skills away from here and make meaningful change in the world. And I, we've really seen, I think, an uptick in interest in our programs, perhaps as a result of the pandemic, um, but certainly we are um, evolving to address some of the concerns that have come out of the pandemic in some of our programming. Is it accessible? Because I'm, I'm very aware that the work that Hubbub does is right there. It's on the ground. It's in communities. It's in spaces that are often marginalised or, or isolated or, dare I say, deprived. So communities such as Community Fridge Project, which I'm sure Trim will tell us about. But Schumacher sounds as if it might be, you know, incredibly beautiful, but perhaps a little bit out of reach for, for ordinary people. Well, I mean, it, it may have a reputation of, of being that way, potentially. Um, we made strides in the direction of creating greater accessibility. And you know, one of my priorities is, in fact, creating a more accessible uh, learning environment for everyone. And you know, as director of learning, it's not only the you know, accredited master's programs and our new undergraduate program that's coming on that fall under my purview, but the, the learning experience of anybody that sets foot on the estate, um, whether that's you know, buying a cup of tea or coffee or, or walking through the gardens or you know, buying produce at one of the farm stalls of one of our partners or tenants um, here on the estate. You know, it's really about making sure that those people are engaged with, you know, with the learning that, that is in context here uh, and making that connection between the human and the more than human. We did take strides in our top programs a couple of years ago. We dropped our fees more than 40% um, to create greater accessibility for incoming master's students, recognizing that, in fact, you know, that potentially was a barrier. Uh, and we've also increased the number of um, low residency programs to make our programs accessible for you know, students who are currently working, um, who you know, don't have the luxury necessarily to relocate or the ability to relocate for six months and take a master's program on site. Um, this year and this past year, we're offering many of our programs entirely online. Um, and so we have students from around the world joining us, you know, again, increasing the accessibility of our programs and offering this learning as broadly as possible. And additionally to the top programs, we have a whole range of short courses that are you know, quite affordable um, and you know, very often short term, whether it's for an evening, an afternoon, weekend or a week. Um, students can come and stay in residence or come for the day uh, and engage in you know, what might be components of some of our larger courses that really focus in on specific action, specific thinking about ecological and human contexts. There's clearly a huge thirst for this. Um, and Trin, you're finding that, aren't you, on the ground the, with the work that Hubbub does, that people do want to take action. They do want to be engaged. They do want to care about the environment that they're in. Tell us about some of the things that you've been doing, because, you know, your, your new programmes, particularly around litter, are, are, are fantastic. 
Yeah, so we've been keeping a close eye on what's happened to people's values during the pandemic, and it's a fool's errand to try and decide what will stick and what won't. But I think one thing's really clear is that it's sort of shone the, a spotlight on the fault lines in society. So, you know, where there are people making sourdough bread quite happily, there are others um, desperately struggling to put food on the table. So, you know, there, there's no one common response to the pandemic. It's, it's split society even further than it probably was split previously. But what we have seen is that, especially immediately the pandemic hit, that people started to sort of question where the food was coming from. They became very concerned about food waste, so they were cooking more. Uh, they definitely connected with, with nature a lot more. Um, and I think, you know, people saw the impact of if everybody does the same thing at the same time, the quality of the air in your cities improves. And it was, it was quite a stark indication uh, about, you know, what a mass change of behaviour actually can achieve. So, so we've had to respond to all of that. I think where we're looking increasingly is that the, the connection between environmental benefits, particularly around carbon, but social benefits. So, you know, our community fridge project is about making fresh food that would have been wasted accessible to everybody in society. And the demand for that has grown enormously. With O2, um, we ran a camp or running a campaign called Community Calling, which links the fact that the UK is one of the biggest producers of electronic waste. And many of us have smartphones sitting unused in a drawer, probably at home and destined eventually for the bin, I suspect. And yet we have a huge number of the population who are digitally isolated. So with O2, we got those phones donated, digitally and physically cleaned them, and then gave them to the isolated people uh, with a year's worth of free data. So that hits the environmental target of reducing e-waste, but probably more importantly, enables people who couldn't talk to their family, to the carers, get access to education. It, it gave them, them a link. So, so increasingly, we're looking for that, that connectivity between an immediate social benefit and an environmental benefit. And our, and our food waste projects, we've done a food waste project with Tesco. So normally with a food waste project, you can achieve a reduction of food waste for about four or 5% if you're lucky. In the pandemic, it was up around 70%. So, you know, just showing that that people really started to, to take, take sort of focus on this. But on the downside, although people have enjoyed fresh air, you know, you've got to give them the infrastructure and the ability to, to see through their vision. So if people are scared about getting on public transport, they're going to use their car. So we've seen sales of secondhand cars rocketing because people feel that's the safe way to travel. And similarly around uh, plastics, you know, PPE and more people using drive-throughs, eating out on the streets. So, you know, although people are in nature more, we've seen a massive sort of boost in the amount of littering uh, and uh, equally antisocial behaviour. So, you know, there, there are upsides to the pandemic, but, but there are clear, it's clearly also driven quite a lot of negative behaviour from an environmental and, and a sort of aesthetic and social viewpoint as well. Yeah, so that commonly held view that, you know, we've suddenly become much more caring and aware of our environment is actually possibly not true when you start to test it. And your stats about the littering and, and the waste have uh, reinforced that. But do you think there's a a shift that we could build on, Truin, to help people connect more and be more environmentally, both both urban and natural environment, more aware and more concerned and more active in those environments? Yeah, I mean, you have to sort of take every statistic with a pinch of salt, don't you? So, 
Yeah, although there's more litter in, in our green space, one of the reasons for that is that more people are using green space. Um, and I think, you know, one of the, the real shining things that we've seen is people are wanting to connect with nature uh, and, and wanting to have that privilege of, of a green space. And obviously, and unfortunately, access to green space is usually easier for those in wealthier regions. So, you know, how can we bring nature to every part of, of, of our community. Um, so I do think you take statistics with a pinch of salt. I think the other thing that I think is massively encouraging is that when we had the last recession, and let's be clear, we are heading into a massive financial recession, um, the environmental debate just disappeared from the corporate agenda uh, and the government agenda. Almost the opposite has happened this time in that companies have seen the impact of an unexpected thing that was probably on their risk register, but quite a long way down. They've seen the devastating impact that that, that can have. And I think it's made them reevaluate what climate change could do, you know, um, at a global level to their supply chains, uh, the way they operate, their, their, their license to operate. So the way that companies are responding is changed dramatically. And similarly, in particular in the US with Biden's election, many of the government ambitions around sustainability are, are building. So I think that gives me hope that the infrastructure and the desire from some quite major players is in a very different place this time than it, than it has been previously when we're about to hit a, a major recession. It's interesting that you say that because, I mean, if we were to believe the, you know, some of the banks, um, Barclays in particular, we're heading for a, a boom, not a recession at all. And it's, you know, it's all sunny uplands. But I think the reality on the ground is far from that, isn't it, for most people? And whether it's the end of furlough or whether it's potentially just the end of their jobs generally, there will be a significant downturn. And I'm concerned about that because companies are, as you've said, they're keen to do things around the environment and the climate when the going is good. But when it gets really tough, will they pull back from that when the actual challenges of having to deal with some of these issues, which will be costly for lots of large organisations, will they really have the impetus and the courage to see it through, do you think, Trun? I think an awful large number will, um, because you know, one of the other things that's changed is that the economics has shifted. You know, renewable energy in particular is now price competitive, um, at least with traditional fossil fuel uh, energy sources. There's legislation coming through on, you know, everything from single-use plastics to clean air and the drive towards electrification. There, there are certain sort of bigger bits of momentum happening now that that, that are taking companies down this path, which probably didn't exist four or five years ago. And is there a problem with, with education generally? Because I'm honestly, Pavel, you're at the older end, you know, you're in higher education, further education. But what about with young people in schools? Have we got an issue about making sure that our curriculum reflects the needs of our wider environment and that climate change is on the agenda and that young people are given the tools they need to question and probe and make the right decisions? Or is actually the education needed amongst older people, you know, those who've got the, the money and the power and the buying decisions? Well, I would say both are both are true. Absolutely. Um, and we see that in some of the you know, land-based enterprise and education that we have here, you know, on and around the estate here in Dartington, um, that, you know, getting uh, young students, children really, engaged in any sort of learning, any sort of processes, um, whether it's, you know, learning how to grow a carrot uh, or going out into the woods and you know just exploring the forests and connecting with nature on that on that level 
um, is, I think, the real foundation of building those conversations at home with the parents uh, about, well, why aren't we doing this? Or, you know, could we, could we recycle this? And, you know, starting those sorts of conversations early on, um, you know, I think in, in some ways, if we wait, you know, for education to take on, take on these issues with, you know, older generations, I suppose, master students and undergraduates, then we might have missed a trick, really. Like we need to start quite early on, but also reinforce as we work through the educational system and have those opportunities and sort of meaningful experiences um, throughout. Because my sense is that young people kind of get this. I mean, you know, we look at the movement, the school strikes, and we look at the inspiration of Greta and others who've just engaged and mobilized young people. My sense is that they probably get it and they probably have a frustration with those of us who are parents or, or possibly even grandparents who are not seeming to get it. And those of us who have positions of influence, whether we're, you know, corporate CEOs of the kind that you've been talking about, Drew, or, or whether they're just influencers in the community. So perhaps we have a job to do of, of getting the young people to educate others in society. And you do that, don't you, Trun? You bring young people and you bring corporate employees together so they share those messages with one another. Well, I think an awful lot of young people do get it. And and they are getting increasingly vocal. So the school strikes is, is a great example of that. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's born out of frustration. Um, and probably that they're, they're getting it almost despite the existing curriculum. Um, uh, you know, I suspect they're getting it from other sources, the Attenborough films or, you know, the other inspiration, the Greta's, you know, I think, I don't think our education system is helping them to get it, but it is asking an awful lot of young people to drive change within society. You know, and, and there is a danger that you can be sort of setting them up to fail and you can see the amount of flat that poor Greta gets for even questioning authority from people who have vested interests and don't want to see change because they're probably doing quite nicely out of it. Very, thank you very much. And, you know, very, a young person, a particular woman to come and challenge their viewpoint uh, is, is unfortunately in sort of the culture wars that we seem to be ent- entering into is quite a difficult terrain. So, so it's fantastic they are getting it, but, but let's be clear, you know, it's the people who have the ability to create change at the moment who need to be making that change. So it's easier for young people to have the sort of quality of life and, and a sort of quality of environment that, that they're desperately seeking at the moment. This episode of Planet Pod is supported by global law firm Evershed Sutherland. are those people? I mean, are those the the corporate leaders or are they, I mean, where do we need to be focusing our attention if we try and do what we're told we need to do, which is build back better post-pandemic, rebuild our economy in a way that's green and sustainable? Whose voices should we be calling out? I mean, who should we be challenging, do you think? Well, unfortunately, everybody. (laughs) It's, it's, we're not in an, you know, we're in a crisis here. It's not a like you go first situation. Um, and it's difficult because, you, you know, these changes have to be at a global and a national level. And you can see the difference between a Biden and a Trump, for instance, which sets the music and, and the investment. But you can look at countries like Brazil, um, Russia, perhaps you could argue India, you know, where world leaders just aren't taking this, this leadership. Um, and then you've got obviously places like China with immense influence. So you've got to have that change. And, and that goes beyond corporates because, you know, a corporate is going to have precious little sway over a Chinese government. But I think what's encouraging in China is that they've actually seen the impact of poor air quality, water shortages, um, 
and I and I think they you know they're almost dictating change for other reasons perhaps but but the, but there is a ray of hope in even in, in in China that that this change is happening but yeah we need all of us to to do whatever we can within our powers and that's sounds a bit sort of Miss Wildish in its aspirations but but I think that's the sad reality of it. I think that I think that's exactly it, right? Um, and as I said earlier, you know, offering education at every possible level, from children through to, you know, I, I'm amazed at the diversity of students that, you know, diversity of ages and nationalities, um, you know, and backgrounds that come to our master's programs. I mean, anywhere from, you know, early twenties all the way through their sixties and seventies, um, you know, looking exactly for the skills that we're talking about here. You know, to then be able to go out um, to reskill themselves and be able to go out and facilitate these conversations for a wider public. I think ingrained in a lot of what we do here, um, it, you know, at Schumacher specifically is, you know, giving students the tools to be able to you know, go out and have a sort of a public facing, you know, um, engagement, you know, and, and action that's actually meaningful. So it's not, not only about learning, you know, theory, learning theory and practicing it on their own, but about applying that into meaningful action outside. And I think that's absolutely key. And, and as you're suggesting, you know, across the piece at, at every level. Um, and hopefully we're having a bit of that impact here. Pavel, you talked about more than human. What, mm. what, do you, what do you mean by that? I mean, and how does that work into some of your own personal philosophy and the sorts of things that you do? Yeah, well, it's a carefully chosen phrase that I that I use rather than, you know, nature or environment or, you know, human and not human. Um, because I'd, I'd like to think that really the, the, the excitement for me about making that connection with the world around us is recognizing that there is a more than human world. It's more than us um, and that we are part of it. And that as soon as we can you know, try to focus in on a world where humans are not at the center of everything, uh, and in fact, the world we share and the relationship is at the center of everything, you know, then that begins to shift the way we talk about things, um, the way the way we engage with the world around us, the way we engage with one another um, in culture and society, uh, and the way hopefully we begin to make and change policy decisions, purchasing decisions, you know, it, it all begins for for a, from my perspective in that relationship. I mean, that's a process of understanding that we are part of something that is larger than us, um, and we do that here. Not again, not just sort of theoretically, but we have a lot of embodied practice um, where we take students out and. You know, literally make that connection uh, between oneself and the world around and think about how we can actually collaborate with the broader world, you know, to be able to tell this story and to be able to shift narratives and shift perceptions. And that's really the key. It sounds absolutely fascinating. And it is really close in a way to the work that you're doing at Hubbub, though at a very different sort of scale, perhaps from a slightly different um, theoretical perspective. Because Trin, so much of what you do is actually just demonstrating to people how they can make change and enabling them to do that and understand the world directly around them, isn't it? With things like, you know, the, the rubbish monsters and the campaigns that you've had. And it's really about making it real for people, I suppose, isn't it? Whoever they are, young and old. Yeah, I, th I think it's the important of the immediacy of your environment for, for many people that's so crucial. So, you know, one of the projects we run incredibly successfully is with uh, residents in some of our northern towns and cities who, many of whom are in terraced houses and have alleyways at the back. And for various reasons, those alleyways have become flighted and sort of rat infested and no go areas, um, meaning that their children have to play on very busy street fronts. So if you can shut off the, the alleyway and refurbish it and turn it into a safe green space, then it gives children a place to play. It gives a chance for adults to meet in a slightly less 
hectic environment and it gives them a chance to start growing things and understanding the seasons and connection with nature so that sort of that's what i mean by how do you bring nature to people in in an urban setting and in manchester we're we're just really experimenting with this um and we're, we're doing some research around it to assess whether if people connect with something in the in their local environment which is you know part of the natural world does that then start to shift their perception around climate change and shift sort of more pro environmental behavior so you know we've got things like tiny urban forests um sort of nature takeover weeks uh give it a grow kit so that people whatever their space they're in can grow stuff in their homes and perhaps grow some herbs or saddle leaves or, or just some flowers so so i think this is a real attempt by us to build on what we've seen from the research we've done around the pandemic about people's desire to connect with nature so can you take that desire and actually shift it so that it becomes more broad than that and it is about i understand climate change i see why it's important therefore perhaps i need to start recycling more or you know saving a bit more energy at home or traveling differently or whatever it is so so that's that's something we're very keen to do and are people really making that connection are they making the connection between understanding more about the environment immediately and being able to grow things and the impacts of climate change because you know that's absolutely key isn't it because we've got to try and make this real because we can talk a lot about you know melting ice caps and threats to polar bears and global shifts that we know are happening as a result of the changing climate but we bring it down to the local and the real and the actual is really important in that process of encouraging people to to do things differently well i i don't think we're anywhere near that to be honest and and all the corporate dialogue around race for zero net zero you know nobody has a clue what that means you know in, in in the vast population and nobody frankly really cares um so you know climate change has always had this problem in the way it's been framed and discussed which is it's a big global issues with impacts that you probably won't see immediately you know it might not even be happening even if it's all china's fault we're building power stations da -de -da -de -da. there are so many sort of escape routes <laughs> in that conversation that, that that enable you to avoid sort of confronting it yourself or taking action yourself but if you make it really really localized and start to build the conversation from that way up th then you do see it and and you know you, you can see that really clearly in communities that have been hit by horrific flooding um you know some of the cumbrian sort of villages and towns have been hit quite severely by flooding on a frequency that is you know they weren't expecting you know they start they see it they they understand there's a connection and 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 you know so the, so if you could you can make that connection between your natural world your immediate environment and climate change then 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 people do make that connection quite quickly it's crucial that isn't it being able to bring it to your people's direct experience um because and the theory and practice sometimes don't don't align and Pavel lots of the things that you do are around trying to show that aren't they because of the sort of endurance events that you personally take part in and the the in some of the running in the arctic and things why do you do that and how do you think that's helping this conversation well i mean it, it's quite personal you know to, to get into those spaces um and you know cheeky question sorry <laughs> no, no that's all right i mean it, it, it has a public face to it um and one of the reasons that i that i do that um is to be able to come back and you know use that experience to leverage conversations about you know individual connection and you know to place you know, through the development of vulnerability and really blurring the boundary of where you know you you be, you end and the world begins and again, again it's that between the relationship between the human and the more than human again um, and you know, for me, that's one entry into it. 
But if that gives me the opportunity to then speak with, you know, dozens, hundreds, thousands of people, uh, and then shift that conversation and start talking about, well, what is it that you can do, you know, in your, you know, walking down a hedgerow and you know, recognizing some plant in there that you've never seen before, or some bird species that you've not seen, um, you know, that's what's, you know, that's what lends itself, I think, really to that engagement that we're talking about here, that it can happen anywhere. Um, it need not be, you know, in great rural estates, it, you know, can be in a park in the city, it can be, um, you know, on a tiny bit of hedgerow, it can be in a little bit of a, a little bit of a lawn. Um, but it's a matter of you know, understanding how to engage with that and, and, you know, perhaps facilitated engagement and sort of thinking about, you know, how we can take that relationship and then use that um, to talk in a broader context about climate change. What sort of things do you actually do? I mean, do you, you do endurance events, don't you? I mean, can you sketch out? <laughs> they sound um, quite scary to me, I have to say. <laughs> and the run, the word run seems to appear quite a lot in this. Yes. Yeah. Well, well, not running quickly, just to be quite clear about that. Oh, good. Um, okay. Well, I can manage that. Slow running, I can do. Yeah, slow running for, for a really long period. So one of my sort of favorite things to do is to you know run quite a way. So for an entire day or for several days on end, um, you know, across Arctic landscapes, you know, I quite like their barrenness and their openness. Um, and it's a place where, you know, climate change is quite visible. I mean, you mentioned melting glaciers and literally that's where the melting glaciers are. Um, and, you know, the impact of that on the, you know, Earth's surface as, as it sort of rebounds when that weight of the ice diminishes, um, there's such a dynamic in that landscape that I think, again, it's not necessarily visible if you're you know, not immediately impacted by, you know, climate change precipitated flooding or rising sea levels or, or whatever else that might be. So it creates sort of this, this bare landscape where things are really visible. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, that, that's a way to, for me personally, to reconnect um, or to connect with those uh, really open uh, natural spaces more than human spaces, and then come back and be, again, have those conversations um, you know, people love to look at beautiful pictures of Arctic landscapes and glaciers. And if that's the entry into the conversation that I can have with, you know, a, a group of, you know, in Ohio of, of middle school girls, for example, um, you know, you know, uh, you know, 12, 13 year old girls to, to talk about, you know, resilience and their connection to you know, nature in their backyard and the suburbs where they live uh, or other conversations with, with older people who engage in outdoor activities, then I think, you know, that's a successful route for me. Yeah. And that's the, I guess that's the using that as a leverage to have those wider, deeper conversations. It's the entry point, isn't it? I think so much of what you've both been talking about is entry points. And I think what's clear to me is that we have multiple entry points for multiple communities in multiple situations. And there's no one answer is there, as you were saying, Trin, there's no one solution to this, but we do need to do this together in a connected and joined up way. And, and with a degree of, you know, intersectionality. Well, you sound at times quite hopeful, Trin, at other times quite despairing. Um, uh, you know, uh, uh, are you at all optimistic about what's happening now and in the run up to things like the big conference in the autumn, which is getting so much coverage and everybody's going to say this is our chance to show real leadership as a nation? And are you optimistic about the future or, or, or should we, you know, just be packing up and going home now, really? Well, you're asking the wrong person because I'm... Despite all the evidence, I'm a perpetual optimist. But, <laughs> you know, I think you have to be, don't you? The ridiculous thing about this is, is that most of the technologies to, to address this, most of the solutions rest within our own hands already, um, mm. you know, if, if we deployed them enough. And what's, what's stopping it is inertia, political will, vested interest, you know, all the usual things. 
So, you know, there, there, there is a target to be got at. So it's like, you know the baddies and you know the goodies. Um, and, and actually that quite helps sometimes um, to, to define what you need to do. So the evidence is not great, obviously. <laughs> you know, carbon emissions are not going the right way, despite the many fine words from many people. And it's a problem we've known about probably about 30, 40 years, to be frank. Everybody's saying, well, this is a new thing. It's absolutely not. You know, we knew what was happening many years ago and a lot of people didn't want to tell us. So, yeah, the evidence is not good, but, but the potential to change it. And that's, that's the thing you've got to grasp, keep hold of. It's like, potentially it's in our own hands. Um, and also the other thing is, you know, what is climate change? What's its impact going to be? You know, it's, it's going to hit the most vulnerable in society. It's going to make life far less present. It's probably not going to destroy people. You know, there's still going to be nature to an extent. So it's not like a, the end goal of doom and gloom. That it's, we're, it's, you know, it's a progression. And the more we can do now to safeguard all this wonderful biodiversity, the richness of the landscapes we've just been hearing about, the more we can do now, the more improved quality of life and precious life we can give to future generations. Um, and I think that's really what we've got to keep hold of. What would you have people do? Because we always ask people for, for actions or for calls to change or something that listeners can take away wherever they sit, whether it's in a corporate or, or, or in a community or just at home. What, what can people do now, today, tomorrow? Yeah. So, I mean, the easiest thing is eat one less meal of, of meat and dairy a week. Um, preferably two, maybe three, maybe four, but change your diet. Um, be more active in your travel. So don't jump in the car. Um, and, and certainly not for those short, highly polluting journeys. And then be more politically active, you know, truly make your voice count. It's really interesting what could be happening in Germany where the Greens, you know, could be the predominant party at the next election. And it, it, if you have that political backing, then a lot of the other things become a lot easier. Yeah, and we saw a rise of green candidates across the local elections, didn't we? Significant increase in. So I think that connection with the community thing that you've been talking about that's so strong is being evidenced in people being able to actually cast their vote and get and get a politician locally who shares their values, green yeah. values. And also there's loads of fantastic hubbub campaigns that people can get involved in, isn't there? From from coffee cup recycling to rubbish monsters to you know pirate ships down the rivers. There's so many fantastic things. So just go on hubbub.com org.uk if I got that right and sign up and are you running the mobile campaign still can people still give you their old mobiles or is that yeah they can so if you've if you've got smartphones they can be donated and then they'll be redistributed to people Mm. who really need it yeah yeah absolutely Pavel what would you call on people to do either politicians policymakers governments or 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 pod listeners you know in their work and home well building off of what you just suggested um you know it's the tiny decisions that matter uh, the most in a lot of ways. It's the aggregation of a lot of those tiny decisions and whether you decide to, you know, to cycle to work um, rather than to drive or even you know, put the proper amount of air in your tires. I mean, these, these tiny little things make such a massive difference and people laugh at those things, but they really make a difference. Um, and I, I really coming back to what we've been talking, what I've been talking about throughout this conversation is you know, finding moments and ways to make that connection um, you know, between yourself and the world that, that we're all part of I think it's that disconnect that leads us potentially to be oblivious to some of the, you know, some of the challenges around us, and and think about you know, climate change as something a bit more amorphous uh, rather than something which is really tangible and right here every day. And it's hard, though, isn't it? But always putting the input us back onto us as individuals when we know it's the large corporations who are creating the plastic waste. We know it's the large businesses who are creating the, the climate emissions. So we're sometimes caught between that space of 
of, you know, I am only one person and, and I have to take responsibility for this. And yet there's big corporate actors or big governments that, that need to take action too. So I think that blending of both the personal and the political is really important in this debate, isn't it? And, and central to, to making these changes happen, making them a reality. It's been fascinating talking to you both. Thank you so much for your time. And a huge thank you, Truen and Pavel, for being with us. It's been really, really interesting. And, and again, a shout out for Hubbub. Go on the website. It's great. You can follow Planet Pod on Instagram and Twitter, or you can subscribe to the podcast via your favourite podcast app or on our website, theplanetpod.com, so you never miss an episode. My thanks to our producer, Jim, and to Beth, our researcher, and to Evershed Sutherland for their support. And thank you again, Pavel and Truen, for being with us. Thank you very much. Great. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. And thank you for listening and goodbye. Planet Pod is brought to you by Akil Management. My thanks to our producer, Jim Hayward, and our researcher, Beth Palmer. And to you, our listeners. Without you, we'd be very lonely. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at planet underscore pod or visit our website. Please get in touch. We'd love to hear from you with ideas for future programmes. Thanks for listening. 